Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack, and today our guest is Bernie Lund, and he is a U.S. Naval Academy graduate who transitioned into ministry and has been a pastor in San Diego for 14 years. He and his wife ventured into real estate in 2019, starting with four single-family homes, and after joining a mentoring program, they were able to purchase a 29-unit property in Augusta, Georgia, back in 2020, followed by another 75-unit property in 2022. So Bernie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Eileen. I really appreciate you having me on. So Bernie, can you share a little bit more about your background and how you got started with real estate? I would love to. Uh, One reason that I love uh, being on podcasts or hearing podcasts is I like to encourage people that we're all the same. Uh, Sometimes I hear a podcast and it's like this rich person or whatever, and it doesn't really encourage me, but uh, I like to remind people that we all came from the same place. And so, gee, I didn't hear about real estate till I was 40 years old. And I mean, I heard about it, but I always thought it was for other people. And basically, long story short, we followed some friends into a single family home, buy and hold investments. And we did that. Um, turned out a little differently than we had planned, but we ended up with those four single ha- family homes that you mentioned and realized that as great as it was, this was not the path that we wanted to be on. We actually wanted to be on a little bit quicker path. And about that time, I had kind of been hooked on a lot of podcasts and real estate education and came across the idea of apartment investing and specifically syndication, which is awesome because I had no money. And so that's kind of the beginning of the story. And the rest is history from there. I'd love to answer any questions or, or help you help folks if I can with, with our journey. So for the four properties that you bought, um, did you put all your money in there? Is that why at the, at the end of that, that's why you said that you had no more money at, when you're getting into syndications? <laughs> well, um, yes, I guess that, that is true. Uh, we honestly didn't have uh, money at the beginning either. And we're very thankful to God. We were able to buy a home in San Diego, which if you know anything about SoCal, uh, buying a home uh, is kind of a big deal. And we never thought we'd be in that market. So funny. Uh, Back in 2014, we thought that buying a home for $300,000 was highway robbery. And it's just wrong of people to charge this much. Uh, And and then uh, lo and behold, in four years, it appreciated almost $200,000. And so Um, That was our ticket, uh, really. And doing that, we said, well, we've got all this equity. We ended up taking out a home equity line of credit, a HELOC. And we used that money, which, you know, is a loan. Uh, We used that money to launch into the single family homes. And yes, the short answer is we poured all the money into those single family homes. Pretty awesome that we could buy four homes for $120,000. But we really did have no money after that. Um, but uh, God blessed again, and we were able to refinance two of those homes and got back all of the money that we put into those two homes. And at that point, we kind of took a pause and said, okay, before we just go off and do stuff, let's think and plan and figure out how we best want to uh, to use this opportunity and these resources. So when you said that you were 
after buying those four homes, you reevaluated your situation. And so what was it about it that made you want to do something a little bit different or kind of uh, pivot into something else? Like what weren't you getting from the single family homes that you were looking to do in real estate? That's a great question. Um, Eileen, honestly, we, I think we have the same, a similar goal to a lot of people, which was financial freedom, which I would take the Robert Kiyosaki definition that basically you could survive an indefinite amount of time without a job. And we were not there. And looking at our finances, we realized that it would take us about 10 years using the same strategy of single family homes. Assuming no other windfalls came in, we were basically going to have to save the rental income until we had enough for a down payment, which of course, as prices rose, then the down payments would rise. And then we would buy another house. And yes, uh, the timeline would decrease uh, over time, but it was just really a slow moving process. And so in order to accomplish all the goals that we wanted, of which financial freedom was one of them, we decided that we had to accelerate this process quicker. And that kind of led us into uh, apartment investing and syndication. So then you joined a mentorship program after that um, before purchasing uh, the first 29 units. Yes, I tried doing it on my own. Uh, I listened to a lot of podcasts and I said, okay, I kind of understand the concepts. I know what needs to be done. And I started doing those things, but it got really scary. Like I'm just out here on my own. Um, Maybe some people really enjoy that. Good good for you. Uh, But I was a little bit more needy. (laughs) Uh, I had no one to ask questions. I had... I couldn't afford to make a mistake uh, with our family's finances. I basically had one shot at this. If I messed it up, I would theoretically put my family behind about 10 years financially, not the end of the world, like we'd survive, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do it right the first time. And after about three or four months of trying to go it alone, I kind of said, you know what? I think it's worth the money for me to invest in a, uh, a mentorship program and to have that support and basically that fallback in, you know, to shore up my my weaknesses, my ignorance, and to help me on that path. It's definitely much quicker to take half steps forward instead of having to take three steps back and then making your way going forward again. So yes. having the mentorship or having at least a community of people that you could lean upon, learn from, leverage their experience, their knowledge to be able to prevent some of the mistakes that they've made in their past definitely would help, you know, in anyone's journey going forward, maybe not prevent all the mistakes, but at least, you know, some of the big ones. Yes. No, that's hundred percent. I agree. And having successfully done the mentorship program and looking now for my third uh, deal, my third syndication, I can tell you that it was, it was all worth it. It would have been worth it after that first syndication, hundred percent. So they always say, especially in multifamily syndications, it's always about the law of the first deal, right? So talk a little bit about how you found that first deal. What were some of the challenges that you had to face in getting over that first hurdle? Well, if I could go sideways for one second, I would say I'm going to edit the law of the first deal. It is totally true, but I can tell you that I made all my mistakes and I did the most learning on my second deal, when I went out on my own, uh, yes, the law of the first deal uh, is so important because that's really the key. Once you do that first deal, it does open up those doors and allow you to do stuff. But uh, I don't think I paid the piper or paid my dues really until my second syndication. But um, first syndication, 
honestly, the biggest struggle for me was capital raising. I, I'm not a good capital raiser, which means I'm probably not a good salesman. Uh, at least that's a skill that I need to learn and to develop. Um, it's not like I can't capital raise, but it just doesn't naturally come to me. Uh, so I ended up partnering with some guys. I brought other people onto the team. That was not my original intention, but I had to do it. And my business partners are, are great guys and I don't regret it at all. And honestly, we look forward to partnering again on future deals. But I would say capital raising was the biggest struggle. Um, just learning the terminology and the basics of the business. Uh, it's so funny. I, I did not have a real estate background. And like I said, I didn't know about real estate till I was 40 years old. And so it just always in the back of my head is this has got to be too good to be true. Like there's no way this is legit. This has got to be a Ponzi scheme. I mean, syndication, like the mob has to be involved <laughs> in this. And it took me a while to kind of realize that this is legit. Like this is common. Uh, I mean, common in a sense that uh, banks know about it. And, you know, there are a lot of syndicators out there, but it is a legitimate business plan and is by no means a get rich quick thing. Like there's a lot of work involved, but all of it worth it. And uh, I enjoy it. You said the second deal was the one where you cut your teeth on and you learned from the most. Can you share a little bit about those details? Would love to. Um, there are so many. I'll just try to pull a couple of them. The very first one is my mentor on my first deal. He's still my mentor. He's my friend, business partner. Uh, but he laughs. He said I had deal fever. And I sure did. Like it was, I heard about the law of the first deal. I'm like, well, now everything's going to break open. Like I should be like rolling in deals left and right. And so I was hungry for a deal and I would not accept no. And that tenacity is good to a point, but there comes a point at which you have to look at the facts uh, and say, you know what, this may not be a good deal, but I just kind of refused to see all that. I said, this is the deal. I will have this deal almost at all costs. And it cost me. Um, the deal's still going. It's it's going well. I think we're going to come out just fine. But I paid a large price uh, because of my deal fever. Uh, my second big lesson was debt. Um, this debt environment, this financial environment is quite different from three years ago. Uh, three years ago, money was easy and it was cheap and debt was no problem. And pretty much anything you did turned to gold in real estate. Uh, that's not the way things are now. Uh, now, I think you actually do have to be a good operator if you are going to succeed in, in apartment syndication. And I unfortunately took on a bridge loan without a rate cap uh, in 2022, early 2022. And so basically our debt service payment almost tripled and there is really no underwriting that can account for the tripling of a debt payment. And so what did that do? Well, I have not made a distribution to any of my investors in two years. Uh, we are still solvent and we are coming up on our refinance or sale. And so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but it's basically we're going to exit this deal or refinance, have some kind of capital event. Uh, but I should, I'll never do that again, ever. I, if I'm going to get a floating rate debt, I will have a rate cap no matter what. And if the rate cap makes the deal not work, uh, because rate caps are very expensive today, then guess what? I'm going to pass on the deal. There's other deals out there. It's just not worth it. It's not worth the pain and the suffering and the stress. So those are probably my two big lessons. There's many more, but I don't want to be too much of a monologue. <laughs> you can definitely, yes, with the apartment syndications, with anything in real estate, when you get tied to a property or um, a deal emotionally, it takes a lot of 
looking at just the numbers and trying yes. to be just looking at the numbers to see whether or not the deal works or not. And so you become emotionally attached to it and then all else kind of fades away and whether or not it makes sense or not, emotionally, it makes sense because you're eager to do the deal, but that's when you need to really take a look at hard and fast at the numbers and just really focus because the numbers don't lie. It's the people who make the numbers work. But if you really break it down and look at the numbers, it's like, does it really make sense? Do the numbers um, tell the story that you need it to tell in order to make, you know, does the deal actually pencil out correctly or not? I was definitely not objective. And there were so many warning signs. The deal fell out of contract at least three times uh, due to seller performance issues, you know, by the end, we were basically acknowledging that there were condemned units in the property and that we would get money back for those and all kinds of things. Uh, so many warning signs, but I didn't listen to them because I needed this deal. <laughs> and so here we are. So what are some of the things that you had to do in terms of operating to keep the deal afloat, um, especially during the tumultuous time as the rates were fluctuating and um, things are kind of moving up and down? You're not really sure what's going to happen. What are some of the strategies that you had to utilize in order to keep operating the property? I would say uh, operations of a property rise and fall on your property management. And I'm based out of San Diego, California, but I'm investing primarily in Augusta, Georgia. And so I need a third party property manager. And we, after a year, we actually fired our property manager and I'd never done that before. Uh, now having done it, it's not such a big deal, but it was, that was a big deal. Just basically cutting off that relationship for cause uh, and starting a new relationship. And so uh, that was a huge deal. If we had not done that, I I don't think we would be solvent today. We would have either lost the property or we would have just sold it. And uh, it would have been a lesson learned for the GP team. And, and prayerfully, we would have returned the money, at least the original capital back to investors without a loss. Um, but that was big. Uh, had to change property managers in in the middle of it. What else did we do? Uh, we actually had to work with our debt service provider or with our lender, not debt service provider. We had to work with our lender uh, and we just really had to like force them to the table because they're not that eager to come to the table, but we just hounded them and emailed them and called them and texted them and said we and tried to get out in front of it. Like we knew that things were getting ugly, uh, but unlike a lot of people, we didn't just wait till it was ugly. We were proactive about it. And many months uh, before we got into deep trouble, uh, we actually brought them to the table uh, They and they willingly came and they uh, worked with us. They gave us a little bit of relief, at least in a timeline. We have paid everything like we have never defaulted on a payment, uh, but we needed some flexibility in the timing of that. Uh, and we had to uh, negotiate with the lender in that way. So with the property manager, when you said you had to change the property manager, at what point did you realize that it was time to make that change? Like, what were some of the things that they weren't performing on? Sure. Uh, honestly, it comes down to doing what you say. And so we had spent a lot of money and kind of blindly, uh, it was it was excessive, but we didn't realize that or we closed our eyes to that fact. But then when we really started to tighten the screws down and say, hey, we need these units done by this time, uh, we need these things to happen and when it became obvious that the property manager was not aggressive and basically we had to flog them to make it uh, things happen and 
even if we, all we can do is basically talk and email and text and call. So if they won't perform, then I mean, what's your, your only option is really to fire them. And so, uh, or threaten to do so. And so after several events like that, where it became obvious that they were going to miss the deadlines really because they weren't being a good teammate with us. Um, sure. There's a lot of blame to go around everywhere, but uh, we felt that they were not proactive and they would basically just wait until we did whatever we needed to do uh, instead of them like asking us, Hey, we need this from you. We need this from you. Like it was like they were content to just let things go and they weren't aggressive. And so when it became obvious that we were the only ones really that cared deeply about the property enough to do something, then we said, we got to make a change. We need somebody on our team, boots on the ground that has close to the same level of care that we do. They'll never have that because they're not owners. Uh, we're the owners, but at the same time, it was just so obvious that this was not going to work and we had to be, we had to be done. So with the rates and the interest rates going up and the environment that we're currently in right now, what is your position on how you're going to strategize going forward within real estate? And as, has that changed You know how you are looking at deals, the types of deals that you're purchasing, how you're underwriting? Um, and then what does that look like for you now? I would say that I, I'm just a lot more willing to let a deal go now. If the numbers don't work, the numbers don't work. And I don't care. Like I've had enough pain in my life the last couple of years that I just, I want to enjoy the real estate uh, that I do. Uh, and I want to be able to provide for my investors a solid investment. I'm willing to work, but there's no need for all that pain. And so as far as underwriting goes, I really don't underwrite uh, with subjectivity. Uh, I pretty much for every deal, I go out and get debt quotes. I have some debt providers that are good about that. As soon as I feel like I'm going to go for a deal or I might be putting in an offer on this deal, I send them the information and I say, give me some debt quotes. And so I have in hand, real debt quotes. I do the same for insurance. Uh, insurance brokers are usually very willing uh, to give you quotes for insurance upfront, understanding that every deal, I mean, is not going to be, you don't have to wait until you have a deal to do that. Uh, and so part of my underwriting, basically in three days, what I do is I farm out all the, the raw data to my team. Uh, I have one team member that does the, the basic underwriting. Uh, I use our current property manager to really give me a detailed rent analysis. I go out and get debt quotes. I get insurance quotes. And so really the only variables are what am I willing to give and take when it comes to returns? Uh, because you can make the numbers say anything. You could make any deal be good or bad. It's depending on your basic assumptions. Uh, I, I guess I'm saying I minimize my assumptions um, because I know the area. I already know what taxes are going to be. That's not an assumption. Like that is legitimate. I know what taxes are going to be when it gets reassessed. Uh, if we are lucky and it doesn't get reassessed for a couple of years, then sure, we might have a little bit of a windfall in our tax payment, but I'm never going to count on that. I always underwrite uh, as if worst case scenario is going to happen. And I don't say all the time, worst case scenario. If you did worst case scenario, the deals that you get are very rare. I usually try to kind of find a middle ground and say, you know, I'm willing to tolerate a certain amount of risk. And what I have found in my first deal is that certain areas that we uh, basically underwrote very conservatively, uh, they like, got blown out of the water, but other areas that we underwrote uh, performed extremely well. And so it all kind of balances out uh, as long as you get the big things, which are taxes, insurance, debt, 
uh, and then your basic returns. So Bernie, how has real estate investing impacted your life? Awesome. The practical. We, uh, we've talked a lot in nuts and bolts, um, but you know, that doesn't really inspire anybody like people listening to your podcast. They just want to know, like, how does this benefit me, my family, my life? Uh, and so thank you for that question. I would say it has to do with ultimately my goals for real estate. I highly recommend people do not get into real estate if they don't have a clear idea of what they want out of it. And what I wanted out of real estate was financial freedom um, and maybe generational wealth that would come with financial freedom. Uh, I also, my wife and I wanted to be generous to missions and worldwide missions and the cause of Christ uh, and people in our lives. We just wanted the freedom to be able to buy somebody lunch or do something kind for somebody without being worried like, hey, how's this affecting our budget? Uh, And then a third thing that kind of came a little bit later I realized that I kind of had access to a niche group of investors, um, pastors, missionaries, full-time Christian workers, and it was my opportunity to really help them, uh, a group that historically was not good about preparing for the future, preparing for retirement, being financially wise. And so those are the reasons I got in, and it has benefited my family. We've been able to take vacations that we probably wouldn't have. We've been able to bring family members with us. We have been able to be generous to uh, the cause of Christ in giving and tithes and offerings and in missions giving, and have had the opportunity to basically open up this type of investment to people that never have been exposed to it. Um, My first syndication, I had two other pastors with me. My second syndication, I had 13 either pastors or their immediate family members that were part of that syndication. And so um, all around, Real estate is not an end in itself. It is a tool to get where I want to go. And uh, I am very happy right now with uh, with the results of it. So if there is one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started, what would that be? Oh, wow. I didn't think about that question ever. Um, one thing, one thing to know. I would say... I think I kind of vaguely knew it, but I didn't knew, know this existentially. Like I didn't know it personally until I lived it, uh, is that what I said earlier, there's no get rich quick real estate. Uh, A lot of people get into real estate uh, because they're like, oh, easy money or fast money or a lot of money. It is true. It is very lucrative, but there is work. And the more work you do, the better your return for your work investment. And the less work you do, it's not very high probability that you'll succeed. And so I guess the one thing I would, uh, that I wish I had understood more and I would tell people is, Hey, don't go into this with your eyes closed, go into this understanding. This is going to be work to learn a business, to learn about what I'm doing. Uh, and it's worth it, but it's not free. You pay, you either pay with your time or you pay with your money and sometimes both. And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? I think it's the willingness to act. Um, I see it all too often. People have a lot of information, but they're not willing to, I guess, risk because all action is a risk. Um, you can mitigate your risks. Robert Kiyosaki would say ignorance is the biggest risk. But if you know what the risks are and you mitigate them, that's not so bad. And I would agree with that. But I would say the frustrating thing for me, like seeing people that are earlier on in their journey, like, like I was, is not, not people not being willing to act and take that risk. 
Um, for instance, my wife and I, that for those first two homes we bought, we bought them together. Like, unbelievable now, $40,000 for two nice, decent rental homes uh, in Georgia. And the thought crossed our mind as we wired $80,000, like, what if this is a trick? What if we're being deceived? What if we are just basically borrowing $80,000 to lose it? And now we're going to be paying on $80,000. But we did everything we could. We did our due diligence best we could. And we said, you know what? It is worth the risk. We're going to do it. And at some point, we crossed the line from learning, thinking to actually doing. And I'd say that is the biggest thing that separates successful people in any venture of life from the unsuccessful. It's the willingness to take the risk and then act act on that. So Bernie, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? You can find me on LinkedIn, Bernie Lund. I do spell it with a U, B-U-R-N-I-E. Also, I love people. Honestly, I'm a texting calling guy. Um, they can call and text me, 619-971-1279, or email me at Bernie, B-U-R-N-I-E, at forgeequitygroup.com. Bernie, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Eileen, thanks for hosting. It's been a pleasure and uh, look forward to uh, staying in touch. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.